Now, some of y'all are, are new, and that no, that did not originate with me. But it kind of sets a tone for what we want to do. And I do want you to know that when we say this, it's the Word of God that's primary. And so my goal is I try to the best that I can to be faithful to teach the Word, but I'm a man. So as much as we try, we always and, and will at some point fall short. The goal is to evaluate what I say by the Word of God. And if what I say doesn't match up with the Word of God, well, there's only one that's going to hold true, and that's the Word of God. Uh, you take whatever the Word of God says, and you evaluate what I say by that. That's what they did in Berea uh, whenever Paul went there, and uh, it turned out good for them. So Psalms 37, 1 through 6. Uh, we're just going to read this and then jump into it. So the Bible says, Do not fret because of evildoers, no, be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him. And he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noon day. Now, we don't really read Hebrew. I, I can delve a little bit into it. I'm definitely not a scholar in Hebrew. Uh, but Hebrew has its own alphabet. And the reason I mention that is because this psalm, I didn't know this until I was doing some study on it, is an acrostic song. So that means every segment of uh, the very first line of each segment begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So in other words, uh, the first letter in Hebrew is Aleph. So all that first section will begin with the letter Aleph. And the next section will begin with the next letter, which is the letter Baith, and it'll go through until it gets to the end. So this is an acrostic. Each segment usually has four lines. And this psalm consists essentially of 22 parts, each of which is a complete proverb in and of itself. The psalm is classified as a wisdom poem, that is, one that teaches truths about God and humankind, the general themes of the wisdom of God, the punishment of the wicked, and the reward of the righteous are presented in several ways and in various ways. There's really no uh, orderly development of thought in the psalm as, as much as it is a collection of proverbs, okay? As to the psalmist, the only fact revealed to us in the psalm itself is that he is an old man. Psalms 37, 25, I have been young and now I am old. Some of y'all know this, I know this by heart. Yet I have uh, not seen the righteous forsaken nor the descendants begging bread. I learned it this way. Uh, I'm young, now I'm old, but yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken no his, nor his seed begging bread, right? So today we're going to focus on one verse in the psalm written by this older man, uh, many of us, I believe it was King David, um, and we're going to see what we can learn from the advice that he offers from the life that he lived walking with God. First thing he tells us in Psalms 37 verse 5, commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. We're going to focus on that first part, which is commit your way to the Lord. So the first word in this phrase is the word, the first word in this phrase is the word commit. The word commit comes from the Hebrew word galal. The verb literally means to roll and is taken to mean he rolled as in his cause or his suffering on the Lord. So instead of carrying it myself, he rolled it on to the Lord, right? So it can be translated as he lived for Yahweh as well as he relied on the Lord. The second word in Hebrew, we translate as the word way. It's the Hebrew word derek, and that's actually your son's name, right? Derek. So it means more than just a direction, but actually can also mean the actions and the behaviors of men. Psalms 1, 1 through 6 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way... Of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and all he does he prospers. Now we're going to keep reading that because at the end it says, 
the same word, the way, uh, uh, and we want to look at what it brings out. The wicked are not so, but they're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So it's more than just an act. It's kind of the way they live their life, right? So I want to expound on this idea of a way a little bit further. In Genesis 2, 15 through 16, the Bible says the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. By the way, I could do a whole teaching on that, but actually the word work is the word uh, that we get the word culture from. It's to cultivate the ground. And the word keep uh, in the Hebrew is where we get the word watchman from. So he was not just to tend it, he was actually supposed to protect it, right? And we know in Genesis 3, who was he going to protect it from? He was going to protect it from the serpent that was going to try to come in and was going to start messing uh, with the way things were. But anyway, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely eat. Die. Now, the question I have is, what is the tree of life? What does it represent? Now, we could probably all take a few guesses at it, but I like when Scripture interprets itself. And one of the things that I like to do, I don't know why, I, I really, I know I'm preaching out of the Psalms, but I'm really not a fan of the Psalms, but I read it, right? It's kind of like, if I really had my choice, I probably wouldn't eat salad, but I eat it. Why? Because it's healthy for me. I need it, you know, and so I eat salad. And the same with the Psalms. Well, you know, I have favorite portions of Scripture. I like narrative. I like uh, 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 reading about the accounts of what people did. I'm really not a poetry kind of guy, but it's still the Bible. It's still the Word of God, and so I read it. But I really like stuff like Proverbs. You may not like Proverbs. I like Proverbs, and I know that wisdom... Uh, it was what Solomon asked for, and God gave it to him, and it really helped him in life. And so I learned something from that, and so I said, well, I, I, I need wisdom. I pray for wisdom. And then I read uh, uh, the book of Proverbs. I read one proverb, not one verse, but I read one chapter of Proverbs every day as much as possible. Um, and so I will read through the book of Proverbs once a month, right? And so uh, in the book of Proverbs, uh, the, it actually tells us that the tree of life is associated with wisdom. Wisdom is from God, and therefore we can say that the tree of life is God's way of living life. So wisdom is God's way. Anything other than God's way is our way. And I want to tell you something. That's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents, and I'm going to show that to you. But let me show you where it says that wisdom is equated with the tree of life. In Proverbs 3, verse 13, it says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. And then in verse 18, it says, She, wisdom, is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. So the tree of life was explained to us in chapter 3, but actually I, took, I went there first. If we would have gone to chapter 1, the contrast to the tree of life is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represent? Proverbs describes this as any other way opposed to God's way. It's described as going our own way. So in other words, the tree of life is God's way of living life. You hear from God. Uh, recognize that God knows the right way to live. You submit to his teachings. You do what he asks you to do. Did you know that Adam and Eve only had one direction from God? You know that in the, in the, when they first started making cars, in the whole state of New Jersey, there were only two cars. And you know what happened? They had a wreck. <laughs> one command. One command. And you know what happened? They had a wreck. They violated that command, right? So what did they do? They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Proverbs describes this as any other way opposed to God's. Let me see if I can uh, uh, make that clear. Proverbs 1, 27 through 31, wisdom is talking. Wisdom is saying, all day long I've called out to you and you haven't responded to me. And then it goes and says, when your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then you're going to call upon me, but I will not answer. In other words, you don't want me now, but because you don't want me and you don't want to follow my way, you're going to find you're going to get in trouble. And when you get in trouble, you're going to call to me. But when you call to me, uh, uh, you're going to seek me diligently, but you're not going to find me. Why? Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despise my every rebuke. And you may say, well, that doesn't sound like God. Well, it's, it, it, let, me, let me explain it to you, okay? There's a lot of people that they say, uh, I don't want anything to do with God. And then their lifestyle is falling apart. And you know what? That's where God makes himself known to people in their life. But what you're going to find out is a lot of people don't come to church and start seeking after God because they want God. They come to church and start seeking after God because they're in trouble. And then what happens when they get out of trouble? They don't need God anymore, right? And that's how they approach God. And really that's what wisdom is trying to tell us. It said, you're not calling out to me for me. You're just calling out to me to get me out of trouble, but that's not how it works. So you're only going to submit to the ways of God as long as you have to to get yourself out of trouble. I, 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 I talked about my dad quite a bit, but my dad at the end, latter part of his life was a diabetic. And as a diabetic, uh, you're supposed to submit to certain ways of eating, right? So my dad would submit to whatever it is that he was going through until he felt better. And then when he felt better or his blood sugars got better, and then all of a sudden it was like, I don't have to do that anymore. And what happens when you don't do that anymore? Blood sugars go up again, right? What happens when you stop doing what God asks you to do? All of a sudden you find yourself in trouble again. But the point that I'm trying to get you to realize is that, is that it's not that God doesn't want people calling on him but we need to call on God, not for what he can do for us, but we need to call on God and recognize that it's because of who he is. Yeah, right? Now, you may recognize and start to open yourself up to God because you hear of what he can do for you. But if you only serve him because of what he can do for you, your heart's in the wrong place. But I want to tell you something. When you begin to serve God, what you begin to realize is that he can do anything. And he loves you, and he cares about you, and he wants to meet you, and he wants to do uh, work in your life. But our heart needs to be in the right place. We need to be serving God because of God, not just because of what he does for us. Am I making sense to you? Okay, so anyway, uh, in verse 30, 31, uh, let's start with verse 30. Because they would have none of my counsel and despise my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit. See that word fruit? What were the Israelites not? What was Adam and Eve not supposed to eat from? They weren't supposed to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what? Are, therefore, they shall eat the fruit because they don't want God's way. They're going to eat from another tree. And what's the fruit of the other tree? They shall eat the fruit of their own way. So what is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It's any other way but God's way. Proverbs 14 and 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Did you know that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not the tree of the knowledge of evil? It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did you know that there are some things that are good that are not permitted for us? It's not good... And what's good in our eyes is what good is what's good in God's eyes. And there are some things that people are permitted to do that for me, I may not be permitted to do. And for me to do something that God doesn't want me to do, then I'm stepping over into the tree of the knowledge of good and 
evil, even though there's nothing wrong with that which he's telling me not to do. For instance, some of y'all have heard this story before. When I first got saved, I used to play soccer. I was a long time ago. I was in a different place. <laughs> so anyway, uh, guess what happens? You know, when they play soccer's, uh, soccer, they play it on Sunday mornings. So I would go to church, and I got saved, and I, I wanted to pursue the Lord. I began to read his Bible. I began to pray. I began to do those things that we're supposed to do. And the Lord began to speak to me. And I don't even know there's nothing wrong with soccer. There's not. There's absolutely nothing wrong. It's a great sport. Nothing wrong with it, you know. And um, if I'd have got counsel from everybody around me, I could still play soccer, and I can go to church on Sunday night. I can go to church on Wednesday night. But I was in my prayer closet one day, and the Lord spoke to me, and he said, I want you to go to church on Sunday mornings. Right? Now, is there anything wrong with soccer? No. Is there anything wrong with going to church on Sunday night? No. Is there anything wrong to go to church on Wednesday? No, absolutely not. But the Lord spoke to me, and he said, I want you to go to church on Sunday mornings. So guess what? To go to church on Sunday mornings, guess what I'm going to have to let go? Soccer. Soccer is a good thing, but it wasn't the right thing for me. So I had to make a choice. Am I going to do things God's way, or am I going to do things my way? I choose to do things God's way. I'm not perfect. I'm still not perfect. I'm, I don't think I'll ever be perfect because there's only one person that's perfect, and that's the Lord. But I really want to do what's right in the eyes of God. I make mistakes, but I want to do what's right. If I have a clear direction from God, I want my, uh, to the best of my ability to try to do that. How many of y'all want the same? Yeah. Right? But sometimes in order to do that, you're going to have to do things that God directs you to do that may not necessarily be the thing that you want to do. But it's what God is, and we will reason with God like this, but why? They don't have to stop playing soccer. There, there's nothing wrong with soccer. I talked to all my friends, and they said this, and the Lord's not going to argue with you, and you're not going to go to hell. We're not saying you're going to go. That's not the point. The point is that there is a good that it, it's, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's not necessarily God's good for you. It's easy to say no. I'm not saying in a, in a, for all of us. It's sometimes easy to say no when you know something is not right for you. Somebody invites you to go, uh, uh, you know, to a, to a place that you shouldn't go to. You know, no, I'm not going there. Right? Somebody invites you to do something you know is wrong. You say, I'm not going to go there. But then, you know, there's something that there's nothing wrong with that, but you hear the voice of the Lord saying, no, that's not what I want for you. Right? This is what I want for you. And so doing God's will, following his way, is more than just that's evil and this is righteous. It's more than that. It's learning how to follow God and follow his direction in your life. And so for me, what I had to learn how to do is I had to, follow, had to learn how to follow God's voice and God's direction for my life and not so much process things rationally or what everybody else is doing, but process things according to what God is leading me to do. Right? What does it say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall make your paths straight. All right? So back in our text with these ideas in mind, the gist of what the psalmist is trying to relate in using the words commit your way to the Lord is, is that he is declaring that he has committed his life entirely to God and he is completely dependent on God to take care of him. He's not just talking about committing his present problem to God. Well, I guess I can't figure out a solution. Let's pray. <laughs> it's like, we got no other choice now. It's really bad. We have to pray. Our Father who's heard in heaven. <laughs> really, when I first got saved, that's how I prayed because that's how my grandma taught me how to pray. That's all I knew, you know. But I'm saying it's like that's how some people approach the Lord, not realizing that he wants to help you in every area of your life. And prayer is not supposed to be the, the thing that we do as a last resort. Prayer is the communication that we have to our loving Father, inviting him into every situation that we have in life. 
So he's not just talking about committing his present problem to God, but committing his entire life to the Lord. His attitude is that he is all in with God. And you know, the Bible doesn't teach any other way. You're either all in or you're not. Now, none of us are going to sit at the judgment seat. Only God's going to sit at the judgment seat. So I'm not going to tell you who's going to make it to heaven, who's not going to make it to heaven. I'm not going to do that. That's not my place. It's between you and the Lord. I will teach you what I believe the Bible teaches. And the Bible teaches that Jesus called for 100% commitment. Right? What does it say in Matthew 16 and 24? He that would come after me must deny him take up his and follow after me. I don't know about you, but across the 100% commitment, right? And so modern Christianity is, and we all struggle with this when we first get saved, but it seems to be, I, I hear it more, I see it more now than I did growing up. It's like, well, what can I do and still be a Christian? <laughs> it's kind of like, in other words, what does the Lord want me to do? Is No, can I still do some things and be a Christian? Can I go to the bar and be a Christian? Can I smoke and be a Christian? Can I get tattoos and be a Christian? Can I do this and be a Christian? And listen, those are all legitimate questions. People that are growing in the Lord, they're going to have those questions, and we have to lead them in that. But to me, kind of what I'm hearing nowadays behind that is, what's the least that I can do and still get to heaven. And the reality is, I'm not really of the attitude, what is the least I can do and get to heaven, because I want us to understand that Christianity is not about how much do I have to give, it's about you give everything. Paul said, it is no longer I that live, but Christ in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Once I make that decision, then the Christian life is about how does that manifest in my life? How do I walk out that decision? What do I have to do to make that commitment a reality in every area of my life? Now, that's a process. That's a growing process. But the commitment is a heart process that we make, we decide. And I think sometimes as preachers, we've tried to minimize the commitment that's necessary to become a Christian. Because we think, I just want to get them to say this prayer, because if I can get them to say this prayer, then they're going to go to heaven. Something happens, they're going to go to heaven, but the heart is not in it. So we get a lot of people signing cards and a lot of people saying prayers, but you don't see them anymore. And the reason you don't see them anymore is because their heart is not really in it. They're not making a 100% commitment. They don't understand what it means to follow after Christ. It, it really, when I look back, I'm not saying that we need to do this again, but when we look back on a guy named Charles Finney, Charles Finney would have something called an anxious bench. And, you know, today it's hard to get people to come more than one day in a row to church. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm talking about in reality. It's, I'm not kidding. It's hard. So you want to have a five-day meeting, and you'll get people there the first day, and they're excited, and they'll come back the next day, but then they don't come back the next day. Or if they come back two days, they don't come back the next day after that. So, you know, it used to be a two-week meeting, three-week revival, six-week revival, nine-week revival. That was just people would do that. But now it's like, well, let me see when Game of Thrones is on. Let me see when this is on, and if I can fit God into my schedule, then I'll go. So back then, when Finney was preaching, there was nothing else to do, and that kind of helps. You know, when there's nothing else to do, the best, best thing going on town is, hey, let's go down and listen to this guy preach, even if it's just to mock him. They'd go down, and that was their entertainment. It was small towns. They didn't have anything. So they'd have week-long revivals, two-week-long revivals. He'd go in there and preach every night, and people would get convicted. But he wouldn't let him get saved. He'd make him go sit on something called an anxious bench. And for two days, 
they'd go down. Three days, they'd go down lower. Four days, they'd go down lower. Five days, they'd go down. Finally, like on the fifth or sixth or seventh day, he would say, okay, all of y'all that are sitting there on the anxious fence, all of y'all that are under conviction, we want to lead you to God. And they had been under so much conviction, they understood what they were leaving behind. And they understood, in other words, Jesus said, um, consider the costs. And we have to have a place where people consider the cost. Do I really want God? You know, a lot of our children growing up today, <laughs> I feel like I'm kind of going off on a on tangent here. I hope it's okay. But a lot of our children growing up today, they are in a different place than we were. They don't just say, well, my parents went to church, so I'm going to go to church. They hit about 18, nine, even if we brought them up in church, 20, 21 years old. And it's like they've got to wrestle with the seeds that have been planted in them. And they've got to make that choice that, yes, that's not just mama's faith. That's not just daddy's faith. That's not just grandma's faith. That's my faith. Right? And so, but the good news is, even though we don't like the process in between, we're praying for them. And if we're praying for them, they're not getting away. <laughs> we may have to pray a lot harder, but they're not getting away. Because the seeds that were planted... When they were young, they're, they're not trying to get in. They're already in there. I'm trying to give you some hope because I was praying for somebody up here. They were praying for their children. I'm praying for my children as well. They come to church, but they're not where I want them to be. You know, I, I, want them, I want them to have a full-blown, vibrant, yeah. passionate, all-in walk with God. And they're not there. Yeah. So we're in the same place. We're praying for our kids, and I get this picture in my mind's eye, the picture in my mind's eye. See, we, we read the, uh, the, the book of uh, uh, Matthew where it talks about the sower sowing seed. And, and we see our children, if they're not serving God, we see the seed coming and landing on their hard hearts and bouncing off, landing on their hard hearts and bouncing off. And the Lord gave me a picture. He said, no, the seed's already inside. They may be crusty on the outside. Don't look around. They may be crusty on the outside, but the seed's already inside. And so what's going to happen is that seed's going to start bringing forth life, and it's going to bust through that hard exterior. You see, it's one thing to try to get seed into a hard heart, but it's another thing when the seed's already inside, and God begins to water the ground. He begins to water the ground, begins to water the ground, and all of a sudden, one day, without them realizing, boom, life comes forth. And that's what we get to believe God for, for our children that we sowed into, we invested into. They're not where we want to be, but they will be. Because there's seed in them and because we're praying for them. And I don't know about you, but I have this conviction that if I ask, I will receive. So how can you be so, so arrogant? I'm not arrogant. I just believe God's word is true. He said, ask and you shall seek and you shall knock and the door shall be. Did he say that? Then how can it be arrogant to believe him? If I'm praying, and he said, if two or three can agree about anything in my name, it shall be. Did he say that? If he said that, then how is it arrogant to believe him? I believe him. My kids don't have a choice. I mean, I, tell them, I, I have to pick better words. I should say, my kids don't have a chance. They're going to serve God. They're going to know God. They're going to carry on what God has begun in my life, and they're going to do it better than I do. How do you know that? Because I'm praying. That's it. That's it. And God, more importantly, is faithful. Amen. Amen. He's faithful. He loves us. Do you trust him? I trust him. Just like Abraham trusted God with Isaac, you can trust God with your children. He will bring him where he needs to go. T.R., he's going to answer your prayer. He's going to answer your prayers. Hallelujah. In the same way, getting back to our, our, our scripture, we as present-day followers of God can and must learn that the only way the Christian life works is to be totally committed to God, totally committed to the ways of God for our lives. We find this theme all throughout scripture. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does, 
the will of my Father in heaven. Can I tell you something? Anytime that the Lord begins to reveal something to you that you're not doing, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to let go of stuff. It's hard to get new routines. It's hard to change the way you do things. It's hard to change the way you feel about someone. If you, if you have hatred and anger in your heart and the Lord begins to convict you that you have hatred and anger in your heart and now you've got to forgive them, I want to tell you something. There's a wrestling match going on. But God doesn't change. His word doesn't change. He's not going to say, well, everybody has to forgive but you. You're special. I don't know. I know how hard it is for you, and you're just going to, I'm just going to change the rules a little bit, just for you. No. Is the Bible say God is the same today and forever? And so when you read that, and it says, you've got to forgive, well, how often do I need to forgive? Seven times? Oh, Peter was thought, man, that's pretty good, seven times. No, 70 times seven. Huh? That's a lot. I can't do that. Turn the other cheek, right? That's not what I was taught when I was growing up. I was taught if somebody hits you hard on one cheek, you hit them twice as hard on the other. But that's not what Scripture says. How am I going to change that? It's hard. But you look at the Word of God and you say, but I've got to. And if God says I can do it, then I've got to believe Him that I can. And so anything that He begins to work in your life about... And he doesn't work in our lives about in the same areas at the same time. He doesn't because we're all in different places. But when he begins to talk to you and speak to you and work in your life, it's not easy. The reason I mention that is because people say, well, if God's in it, it's easy. I don't know about you, but throwing myself on a barbecue pit is not easy. What are you talking about? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, I'm being kind of high. I'm making a hyperbole out of it, but the reality is, is what I'm talking about is it's not easy to crucify your flesh. It's never easy to crucify your flesh, but it doesn't take it out of the Word of God that we're supposed to crucify our flesh. You know, all the time, I, uh, listen, one of my things is sometimes I can be a little terse. You know what that means? Curt, short, right? Sometimes I can do that, right? And I think to, <laughs> and I think to myself, I think, well, it wasn't really that bad. <laughs> how, do they, how do they feel about it? And you know, the thing is, it's not how they feel about it. If I know, and I think to myself, well, it wasn't really that bad, then it probably was. It was enough to bother me. And so what do I have to do? Well, Lord, I'm sorry. No. The Bible says you've got to say you're sorry to the other person. Well, I don't want to do that. I never want to do that. Even now I don't want to do that. But you know what I do? I've learned to do it. It still may take me a few minutes to get there, but I've learned to do it. I've had a few sleepless nights. I don't want to do that anymore. Right? The other person can get over it, but I'm the one that's struggling. And so I've learned how to crucify my flesh. Right? Well, they didn't. Some people keep score. Well, they didn't say they're sorry, so why should I? So if they didn't say they're sorry twice, I should get twice without having to say I'm sorry. Yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. But you're not, you're not, it's not really about you and the other person. It's about you and God. But you also can't live your life in a right relationship. I should say not right relationship, but a harmonious relationship with God without taking care of the other stuff too. Because the Holy Spirit... He's not going to let it go because he loves you. So anyway, 1 John 2 and 4. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments. Now, this is not me. And I know maybe if I get a different version, it won't be so harsh. But this is scripture. This is John, the beloved disciple. And what does he say? He's a liar. And the truth is not in him. Oh, you're just so harsh. You're not very nice. But he's truthful. Sometimes that's what we need. Yeah. We need to cut through all the, 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 the baggage and through all the fluff, and we just need to hear the truth. We may not like it, but we know it's true. Yeah. 
James 1, 5 through 8. If any of you likes wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. In other words, you're not 100% committed to do God's will. Well, Lord, what do you think I should do? But then you're going to weigh it based on what other people think you should do. Based on what your psychologist thinks you could do. Based on what Dr. Phil thinks you should do. But if you hear from God and God speaks to you, it was like, I don't care what anybody says. This is what the Lord says. This is what I got to do. James 1, 21 through 25. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Who are you deceiving? Yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed, not in his thinking, not in his knowing, but in his doing. We live in a culture where we equate knowing with doing. Now, I use this illustration quite a bit, but we got some new people here. So only in this country can you go to school and get a bachelor's degree in business, master's degree in business, doctorate in business, start teaching at a college on business, and never have owned a business. It happens. It happens all the time. So, but the reality is, is you know it here, but biblically that's not what it means to know. Biblically to, means to know, it means when you do it. And so we can't fall into the trap of thinking, well, I've heard it and I know it and I can quote the verse and I can spew it out, but are you doing it? That's what faith is. Faith without works is dead. Okay, so now let's get back to our psalm. Second part of the psalm says, trust also in him. So commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. So two things are here required of us. The first thing that we just looked at is an act, and that's the word commit. The second word is an attitude, and that's the word trust. The act of commitment leads or should lead to the attitude of trust. David assures us that as long as we continue in this attitude of trust, God shall bring it to pass. In other words, God is working out the thing that we have committed to him. It's this continuing attitude of trust on our part that keeps the channel open through which God is able to intervene in our lives and work out what needs to be done. Bottom line is what we're talking about is faith. Trusting that God has heard our prayer, God is working on our behalf, and He will work it out. Trust. But if we abandon our trust, we close off the channel and hinder the completion of what God has begun to do for us. It reminds me of that that kid that was talking about when he was he, he wanted to grow some stuff. And Marty was a farmer, so he, he might be able to, he wanted to grow some seed. So he planted some seed. I, I'm not sure if it was uh, potatoes or something, but he was planting some seed, and he was wondering how it was doing, and so he went and dug it up to see if anything was happening. And when he dug it up, he found that there was some stuff happening, but what happened as soon as you dug it up? It killed it. It destroyed the process, right? And it's kind of like we pray about something, we commit something to God, and then we start fretting and worrying because we don't see anything. We can't, you know what it requires? It requires at some point that we trust. Committing a matter to the Lord is like taking cash to the bank and depositing it in your bank account. Once you've received the receipt for your deposit, you no longer need to be concerned about the safety of your money. That is now the bank's responsibility, not yours. And it's ironic that some people who have no difficulty in trusting a bank to take care of the money they have deposited 
find it much harder to trust God concerning some vital personal matter that they have committed to Him. Trust is like all forms of fruit. It needs to be cultivated and it passes through various stages of development before it reaches full maturity. In another psalm, this ongoing development of trust is well illustrated by the words of David. In Psalm 62 and 2, he says, He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Now, interestingly enough, as he's going along and he gets to verse number 6, he says, He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. So what is the first one? And the first one he says, I'm not going to be greatly shaken. And then his attitude of trust begins to grow in the Lord until he gets to a place where he said, I will not be shaken. And I don't know about you, but I've had those moments in my life where it's like, man, I'm, I'm really giving something to the Lord. I'm praying it out. I'm working on, on, on praying it through and giving it to the Lord. And then all of a sudden, uh, it's like, I, I, I know God's going to work. <laughs> you know, but you're like, I, I, you're kind of confessing by faith God's going to work. But then there comes a moment when I know it's going to be okay. It's not, I hope it's going to be okay or it will be okay. I'm pretty sure. It's like uh, one time we were out fishing, we asked this guy, uh, for directions and he said you know how to get here he said yeah and he said told us how to do that he said and we asked him I said are you sure about that he said I'm pretty sure but not too sure yeah <laughs> you know it's like do you believe God's gonna do it pretty sure but not too sure you know no you get to a place as you it's nothing wrong with being there but you want to get to the place where you get to the, where David did he said I will not be shaken because he is my rock and my salvation. Mature trust is like a deep, strong river relentlessly making its way to the sea. At times, the winds of fear or doubt may blow contrary to the river's course and whip up foaming waves on its surface, but these winds and waves cannot change or hinder the deep, continuing flow of the waters below the surface. They follow the path marked out for them by the riverbed to their predetermined destination in the sea. Trust in its full maturity is beautifully depicted by the words of Paul in 2 Timothy 1 and 12. For this reason, he says, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Now, you've got to realize the context. By all worldly standards, Paul at this stage was a failure. Some of his most influential friends and supporters had turned against him. Of all his close co-workers, only Luke remained with him. One of his co-workers, Demas, had actually abandoned him and turned back to the world. Paul was weak and aged, a chained prisoner in a Roman jail, awaiting unjust trial and execution at the hands of a cruel and depraved despot. Yet his words ring with serene and shakable trust. I am not ashamed. I know whom I have believed in, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. As with David, so it is with Paul. Trust was the outcome of an act of commitment. His commitment is expressed in his own words. He is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. Trusting was the result of entrusting. Maybe we have a hard time trusting because we never really give it over to him. God, I'm going to try you out. I'm going to see if you can really do this thing. But I'm not going to give you 100%. I'm just going to give you a little bit. And if you have a good return on the little bit, I'll give you some more. doesn't work that way. you got to be all in. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Years previously, Paul had made an irrevocable, irrevocable commitment of himself to Christ. Out of his subsequent trials and sufferings, gradually brought forth an ever-deepening trust that had now come to its full fruition in a Roman dungeon, its radiance all the brighter in contrast to its gloomy setting. David's son Solomon captures this attitude in the book of Proverbs when he says in Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, which we've already read, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
And I want to tell you something. There may have been times in that dungeon on the sea when he was in a storm, uh, when he was being beaten, when he was whipped, that he didn't understand. But it didn't change his commitment. It didn't change his trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't understand. I don't understand why the heavens are silent. I don't understand why others get immediate answers to their prayer, and I don't. I don't understand why it seems that when I pray to God, things get worse. I don't understand why other people have it easy, and it seems like everything in my life I have to fight. I don't understand. But it doesn't matter. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. And what happens when you do that? Last point, and this is really short. Psalms 37 and 5. Trust, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will act translates to He will do it. He will perform it. He will make it happen. When? That's the question we both have. I've been waiting. When? How long did it take for Abraham to get his Isaac? You know who Isaac was? It was his son. But more than that, it was the promise that God had made to him that became manifest. How long did it take for Joseph to become what God had given to him in a dream? When all of a sudden God showed him he was going to be ruler over uh, his family and all these things. And the next thing you know, everything went the other way. He didn't go up. He went down, down. And actually uses that word in Scripture. He went down to Egypt. He went down into the dungeon. And he just kept going down, down, and down. But he didn't give up on God. I'm sure he didn't understand. I'm sure he wanted to just pull his hair out. I'm sure he wanted to give in. But he didn't. He kept trusting in the Lord. And one day, God did it. I want to tell you something. God's going to do it. Some of you believe in God. And you've been believing God. He's going to do it. Because he is faithful. And his word is true. Let God be true. And every man a liar. He is faithful to his word. And he's faithful to his people. Ask, and you will receive. He didn't say when you're going to receive, but you will receive it. He said he would. Some people received it in this life, and some people didn't. But it didn't mean that God wasn't faithful, because they saw the answer somewhere down the road. Now, I don't know when I'm going to get my answer, but I know he said it, and I believe him. I know I'm going to be physically well. I know my children are going to serve God. My prayer is they do it before I die. But even if I die not seeing it, they will because God said it. And I believe Him. Now right now, I'm believing pretty good. But there are some times when you catch me when I'm like, God, I don't know. But you know, Kenneth Hagin said this. He said, you can have faith in your heart and doubt in your head. Now, Thinking always the right thing. It's trusting God sometimes in the middle of what you're thinking. What that means is he will take action and he will do whatever is necessary. He will help you. He's already got it worked out. In other words, we can trust in the faithfulness of God to bring to pass that which we have committed in his care. So I've already quoted that scripture, ask and it shall be given to you. He does it. We don't do it. Sometimes we think, if I have enough faith, I can make it happen. No, you don't make it happen. God makes it happen. I used to feel like I was making it happen. I didn't know how it happened that way, but, you know, faith, faith, faith. I'm just going to believe God. I'm going to believe God. I'm going to believe. I'm not going to make a mistake. I'm not going to go this way. If I just believe enough and do everything, the right thing is like I was going to make it happen. No, that's not trust. He makes it happen. 
Remind me in the book of Exodus when God told Moses to lift up the staff. What does the scripture say? Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And who drove back the sea? The Lord. Moses wasn't driving back the sea. But sometimes we act like I'm the one that's driving back the sea by how I hold up the staff. No, you're just being obedient. And you're trusting him to drive back the sea. Again, in the New Testament, we see in the book of Mark, in Mark eleven twenty two through 23, Jesus said, Have faith in God. Tru truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it doesn't say you will make it happen. It says it will be done for you. Who does the work? God. We have a part to play? Of course we have a part to play. But I can't move a mountain. How many of y'all can move a mountain? I can't move a mountain. I can speak to a mountain. I can speak to the mountain that it's going to be removed, but I can't move it. Who moves it? The Lord. Because he is faithful, and he will do it. He will bring it to pass. I wish I, I could remember at this particular time all the mountains that he's moved for me in my life. But some of you can think it right now. If you, if you don't get caught up in the moment and the anxiety and the discouragement and the, and the things that come your way, and if you really uh, learn how to do this, you can go back and recount all the mountains and the victories that God has given you. And when you do that, God is faithful. If he did it in the past, he will do it again. Jesus encourages the disciples to believe, but in the end, in their act of believing, it is God who will make it happen. And to finish, in this psalm, we see two things are here required of us. The first thing we looked at is an act, which is commit your ways to the Lord. We learn today that the only way the Christian life works is to commit your all, to be all in with God. The second thing required is an attitude of trust. Our prior act of commitment leads to the attitude of trust. In other words, we can trust that God is working out the thing that we have committed to him. It is the continuing attitude of trust on our part that keeps the channel open through which God intervenes in our lives and works out all that needs to be done. Mm -hmm.